All right. Hello, Garbage listeners. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I am Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, March 24th, 2016, and this is episode 19 of Garbage. That's right. This is our 20th episode, so it's really cool. We have a lot of cool content tonight. We have um, scheduler changes. Uh, lots of people were asking about uh, what's going on with the scheduler. There were uh, lots of diffs and discussions sent to tech. A lot of people trying things with positive results. Um, so, JCS, why don't you talk about the scheduling stuff and what kind of uh, progression has happened over the past uh, seven days or so? All right. So the best that I can uh, summarize this is one uh, Michael Mazurik, uh posted a diff to the tech mailing list, and this was a kind of a new scheduler for the kernel that was based on Gregor Best's version from 2011, uh, which was based on ideas from the uh, BFS from Linux, which is the brain f- scheduler. Um, I don't really know why it's called that. But uh, the description for BFS is a single shared run queue with strict fairness and earliest deadline, excellent throughput and latency for one too many CPUs on desktop and server commodity hardware, not recommended for 4,096 CPUs. Um, so the version that Michael Mazurik posted, he said that he uh, sped up a kernel compile by like 10 seconds, and so a whole bunch of people tested it and uh, posted the results, and somebody had like FFmpeg uh, sped up by 30 to 40%. Um, a lot of people were reporting that uh, the difference in Chrome and Firefox uh, while they were playing video is that it was basically working like it should, where it didn't uh, skip around or um, drop any frames or anything like that. It was all very smooth. So there were a lot of uh, people basically just testing this and saying that they like it and they it made everything better, but the actual like underlying problem of what was going on was concerning some other developers, so they wanted to actually fix those problems first. So MPI and Katenis, um kind of put out different various diffs that uh, changed things, and they were like much smaller changes that seemed to get similar results, which is, right. I think, a, always a good thing to change less things if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I have uh, basically been reading is that the problem seems to be when a when you have like a multi-threaded program like Firefox or Chrome, um, and it's calling the sked underscore yield function to basically yield to another thread because it has to wait for some operation, um, it doesn't reduce its priority. So when the scheduler is going through those um, threads, it keeps giving priority to that one thread that's waiting for all the others. So the, the smaller changes seem to be that when you call that function, just reduce the priority of that thread, and then the other threads can, um, you know, make progress. Yeah, and um, so not to derail from your technical uh, side of this, but the cool thing that happened, um, just so you guys know, um, this guy sent in, um, well, actually, let's back up even further. He started um, to notice the problem in OpenBSD, and he said, all right, well, let me see if I can figure this out. Started reading code started to try and understand how our scheduling works, um, sent in a diff and um, to the tech mailing list, and he got feedback on it right away. And um, after a while, um, you know, he got invited into chat with the rest of the developers because he was, you know, uh, showing in his replies to the emails, yes, I understand what you're saying because he had a good understanding of the code, and he was talking um, intelligently about how things should be fixed and then um, after that little on-list collaboration, um, you were talking about MPI and Ketnis and uh, the other developers, you know, collaborating with him. 
uh, Theo pointed him right to, you know, LibRthread and said, you know, this is where you need to start. And so he said, okay, fair enough. I'll start there. And he started uh, just reading code again. It was not an issue of like, or it was not a situation where he just magically knew all this stuff. He went in and read the code and he collaborated and he got feedback. And, you know, um, obviously with something like scheduling, there's a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot of things to get right. And um, he's taken the time to um, understand each piece of it and get feedback from the developers and make small changes and collaborate. And I think that that was one thing that I thought was really cool about the whole situation because here's a new guy to the to the project um, and he starts sending in diffs and talking and uh, making a difference. And I think that was one of the cool things for me. Yeah, uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, if somebody had just posted this on the bugs mailing list and said, like, um, I'm having a problem that Firefox is slow. I think you'd get a lot of these same developers who are like, yeah, we know um, it's a problem and, and they may even know where the problem is, but they don't really have the the time or, or whatever to dig in and, and actually fix it. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of takes an outsider who does all that work and digs in and tries things and benchmarks stuff and says like, okay, I changed this and I got this positive result. So, you know, I've done all that legwork. Um, try and join me in doing the last the last mile of this and and actually uh, fix it the proper way. So now those same developers um, are able to jump in much quicker and just uh, figure out the actual solution. Yeah, and the direction too that's been given. You know, they can tell him, yeah, um, what you're saying is sort of true, but here's the, all this other underlying stuff. And I think he was receptive to that and, and did a really good job. So. Um, thank you, Michael and MPI and Ketnis for working on that stuff. It's been really exciting. I read through the um, thread a few times, and I have been testing diffs. Um, initially, there were actually two diffs um, that were sent out, and uh, or three diffs now. Um, and the first one that went out, I tried it, and I was like, wow, Firefox is playing YouTube. And I've made the observation that um, you know we had a lot of people commenting that YouTube works now in Firefox and that seemed to be their benchmark like that was what they wanted to have work mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I put a tweet out that said basically like uh, what OpenBSD is used for on the desktop is uh, multimedia because of all these emails that we got but there there was a problem um, with the initial couple diffs that went out and that was if you were doing other things like compiling a kernel at the same time you're watching Firefox um, sometimes Firefox like wouldn't respond at all or right away or anything, and you'd have to like click twice or something like that. Um, and so, again, even though Firefox is more responsive, when you start to load up the machine or um, you know do more than one thing at a time, like I noticed, I have a, a quad-core CPU on my laptop. A single CPU would be sitting there almost idle, and there might be one really busy one, and still I couldn't get um, Firefox to get. Um, work scheduled it seemed like and do stuff while while the other CPU was busy so um, that's when they started to head down to you know libr thread and do a little bit more investigation and then uh, MPI sent out another diff and it was um, a a more simple diff it was uh, all around the um, spin locks and uh, schedule yield and uh, that basically did the same thing it manifested itself the same way and uh, and then Marketness uh, sent out a diff I think within the past day or so and I've been running his at work, and I see um, the same kind of performance benefits. I see the same kind of performance in Firefox, but at the same time, I'm building a kernel and running, you know, some uh, Go applications and you know, running a web server and stuff. Firefox is still responsive and working and all that kind of stuff. So I, 
I'm hoping we're getting close to some really exciting breakthroughs. And it's uh, cool to see how that all kind of unfolds. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are testing various scenarios like uh, interactive desktop usage, but also, um, you know, like FFmpeg just encoding a video or something or uh, running a SQL server and stuff like that. So should be some uh, good gains all around for the next release. Yeah, good stuff for sure. Uh, I think next up uh, is that art is enabled in current and art is the allotment routing table. And that is about all I know about art. Um, but it's basically a lock-free lookup uh, mechanism for multiprocessor-safe routing. Um, and this is something that uh, MPI has been working on for quite a while, is uh, removing that that big lock around all of the networking stuff so that um, we can be more efficient on uh, multiprocessor machines. So ART went in um, a while back and was just enabled by a kernel option that was off by default, and now it is on by default in current. So test it out, and if you see any problems, uh, report them. And similarly, um, Peter Hessler this week, uh, he tracked down a bug in BGPD, and I don't know what the deal was, but I know that it was a a big enough deal to um, update our stable branches as well as um, the current uh, source tree with with the fix. And I think that was some nasty, weird bug, and he spent a lot of time tracking it down, and then uh, uh, Claudio... Uh, wrote the fix for that, and that went in this week as well. So um, if you guys are, you know, using BGPD or um, any kind of network stuff, I think this is your week to get a whole bunch of uh, exciting new things in. Yeah, it's kind of sad that the uh, that 5.9 is coming out soon, but all of the uh, neat stuff is happening in current. Yeah, so it's always gonna, the way it goes. People are going to upgrade to 5.9 and be like, yeah, it's great, but all this other stuff, so... yeah. Live on the edge, people. Just skip 5.9 and go to current. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Don't do that on your production systems. Yeah, I, I know that I run snapshots on my machines, but I always start on the development you know, end yeah. and uh, test things out there before I put it onto a production system. Sometimes there'll be a snapshot that gets released in the morning, and you're like, what is wrong with this snapshot? <laughs> it's like all hairy and has four eyeballs, and then there's a new one like two hours later. You're like, okay, something got messed up. Yeah, or you just try to install packages and none of the the libc versions are synced up so nothing works yeah that's another bummer too hey speaking of package tools um uh our our package tools um uh, got privilege separation a while ago and i guess there was a new user added um and uh i guess it was kind of uh, enabled recently or turned on recently to force a user uh, to force the use of that user and if you didn't run sysmerge when you were uh, upgrading between snapshots or something like that uh, you got a little bit hosed up and you got an erroneous error message. <laughs> so um, uh, don't forget to run sysmerge when you're updating your snapshots after you uh, log into your machine the first time and restart it again after you do that. Yeah, sysmerge is uh, pretty neat these days in that it doesn't really... Like I remember before, you'd have to walk through like every every changed file and ignore it or do all this other stuff. And now it seems like you just run it and it does everything automatically and uh, you don't really have to deal with anything. So mm-hmm. now it's like I just do make build and, and sysmerge. There isn't really uh, much to it anymore. Yeah, the changes that happened in that were, I don't know, maybe in the past year or so, and it's really improved quite a lot. All right, good. So enough about package tools and networking stuff. Um, I was kind of interested to see a diff that came through um, for our crypto discipline and soft raid. And um, 
basically what the diff was is an improvement to the mechanism that was used to generate the encryption keys for the hard disk encryption. And uh, I guess the way the existing um, mechanism worked, it was a, uh, you'd enter, enter like a passphrase or um, generate a key for some USB drive or something. And that passphrase uh, was passed through this algorithm, basically a hashing algorithm, SHA-1, to generate the encryption keys to encrypt your uh, information. And, um, you know, obviously SHA-1 hashing now can basically be reversed and all that kind of stuff with, you know, a commodity laptop GPU or something like that. And the diff that came out was to, um, to do a couple things. The first was to start using bcrypt in order to derive the encryption keys. And the second thing was to still support um, the existing SHA-1 encryption key generation and use. And what that lets you do is um, you can apply this diff, build stuff, and then you can actually, um, using the bio command, um, you can tell it, hey, I want to change my password on this, um, on this software crypto volume, and it will actually upgrade to bcrypt so you can still do all that kind of stuff so he sent out a diff that up, updates the boot piece um, all the user land library tools and um, yeah basically the whole entire thing so I tried to make use of that and I got a, um, pretty far into it and then the build failed because um, boot was trying to um, link against an object that hadn't been built yet in uh, in soft raid so it didn't have the new symbols in it or all this other kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, okay. And then I got sidetracked um, troubleshooting a network driver and I didn't get it done all the way. But I think it's really cool uh, that this is happening. Bcrypt is the same type of um, uh, algorithm we use for the password file. So the two will be uh, much similar now. I was reading the diff while you were talking. Um, and I was just thinking that it should, uh, it would be neat if it could uh, print in the D message when it assembles the volume that it's still using SHA-1 because mm -hmm. I saw this diff when it came out and even if it got committed I would totally forget to run BioCTL and uh, regenerate the password Yeah. but if I saw it like every time I booted that it was an old algorithm then it would uh, get me to do it yeah you'd see that and you'd think oh I gotta do this um, yeah for sure I, I think that's a useful thing so people know what, what they're running um, I should also probably mention right now that um, currently you can't change your um, uh, soft raid crypto discipline from a passphrase to a pass file or vice versa. So if you picked a passphrase initially or you picked a pass file initially, you, you still can't change between the two. So this doesn't change that at all. This is just changing between um, the key generation mechanisms. Um, I thought it might be interesting to our listeners to hear about some things I went through for making changes to a driver. Um, I was I went through the USB uh, to gigabit Ethernet adapter that I had, and I was trying to make it work better. And um, obviously, I didn't make a very intrusive change or big change, but it made the device work much better than it was. And I jotted a few things down. Maybe they're interesting to you guys. I maybe they're not. I don't know. But um, here they are. So. The first thing that I would encourage folks, if you want to make changes to a driver, is um, read the code. Um, start at you know the kernel configuration where it talks about you know which files to include for which driver, 
that'll point you to where to go in the source tree. Um, then read the specifications for the chips that are on the hardware. Um, and in my case, like I had to look a little bit at the USB spec. There was like super speed and super high speed and high speed and super duper high speed and all these other crazy things. And I was like, what is all this stuff? So I had to reference the USB spec a little bit just to make sure that I was handling all the cases and then all the cases were being implemented properly. Um, I mean, just any kind of specification, RFCs for network drivers, et cetera, just um, those are a good piece of thing to reference. I think, you know, sometimes people get a little frustrated when diffs come in and somebody's doing something that's obviously wrong uh, that doesn't line up with the spec. So make sure you've read that. Um, another good thing I think that's useful is to look at the revision history for the driver. Um, you might be sitting there like reading the code and saying, oh yeah, you know what, uh, this just doesn't make sense to me. Like I don't understand why we would do this here, but do another thing over in another place. And the uh, source changes on that particular driver might show you that. So read the revision history, see who's done what, um, were they making sweep sweeping changes across the entire network stack, things like that. And then the next thing that I think is pretty important is to um, take a look at the mailing list archives. Uh, mark info or wherever you want to go. Um, take a look at if there's been any, any discussion about this in the past. Um, I found somebody like submitting bugs and submitting diffs and I was like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Uh, why aren't we doing that? And um, so it really helps to see if there's been any discussion about that particular issue or that particular driver before. Maybe there's something that's already out there that hasn't been committed yet. Um, maybe there's something that should be committed. Um, yeah, so take a look at the, the archives. And then the other thing, this is what I kind of do, is like look to see what um, NetBSD, FreeBSD are, are doing. If they have a driver for this particular piece of hardware, um, have they made changes to it when they, um, you know, copied it from us? Or have we broken things when we pulled it from them? Have they continued maintaining and fixing things that we just haven't pulled in yet? But there is a slight caveat with this, and <laughs> that is that I've seen so many um, times, this is this is one of my biggest pet peeves, this thing works in Linux, and I'm like, oh, cool, I'll just use it in Linux. And um, the first thing I have to do is validate that it actually works in Linux, because it might attach, <laughs> but it, like, it might not work at all, or it might work for five minutes and then start crashing, or... <laughs> You know, who knows what, but I, I see this so many times and people are like, oh, Linux has a driver for, for that. And so you do all this work, you copy in all their code, you're like, man, they did all the hard work. I just need to make the driver do what their driver's doing. And then you get done and you're like, this doesn't work. You know, like you just spent all this time referencing something that was just completely broken. So <laughs> pay attention to that. Um, and then I guess if you are a developer, um, see who's worked on the driver in the past and get feedback from them and okays from them. Sometimes that's a little bit better than spamming like an entire mailing list for something. Keep the changes small and easy to review. Um, that's one of those things where, you know, sometimes like a scheduler diff, it gets big in a hurry, but you need to be able to break it out into smaller pieces so that people are able to understand this change affects this area, which then later on, this next change will fix this area, and then with the diff after that, then we're home free and doing whatever we intend to be doing. So, um, and last but not least, don't forget to update man pages. 
sometimes people put like quirks in there like, hey, this doesn't work on my such and such and so and so. And if you're fixing that, um, it's best to update the man page or um, if there's other lies in the documentation, um, fix those as well. So take a look at your man pages. But um, maybe that's cool for you guys. Maybe that's useful. Maybe it's helpful. Um, it's one of those things that I kind of did when I was working through the, the changes that I was doing this weekend. So hope it helps. For sure. So is that that Ethernet device working properly now? Um, I I was using it for some time. I was um, SCPing stuff around, and it attaches reliably. It uh, doesn't panic my machine when I unplug it. I had a couple other people be like, oh, yes, mine works now. And uh, uh, Stefan Sperling emailed me back and said, yes, this looks good to me. And uh, so, yeah, I, it's working better than it was for sure. Cool. So what's this rant you have? I'm excited to hear. Oh, I'm sure everyone's heard about it on the internet. It's this uh, Node.js NPM bullshit where, uh, <laughs> to summarize, in case you've uh, smartly been avoiding all of these articles on the internet, some developer that writes that wrote like dozens and dozens of Node.js modules and had published them into NPM, which is like the central package manager for Node.js, wrote or he had a module called Kick K I K I don't even remember what it did. Um, Kick.com, the company I guess emailed him and was like, we want to use the name Kick for a Node module. Uh, can you rename yours because it doesn't have anything to do with our service? And this guy was basically like, no, piss off. And they were like, well, we have the trademark on the name Kick, and uh, we'll send our lawyers after you. And this guy was like, um, no, stop being an asshole. Leave me alone. So then the company went to NPM and was like, this developer's not complying. We have a trademark on this. If you don't give us the name, we'll make it painful for you. And so the people behind NPM gave them the name. And so this developer got upset and pulled all of his modules from NPM. And in doing so, pulled one called LeftPad. <laughs> LeftPad is a node module that you can bring into your project and create a dependency on so that your project depends on this code. This entire code is like a 10-line function that left pads a string. Why you can, couldn't just you know implement that in your own project, I don't really know. So that basically broke all of these dependencies for a whole bunch of uh, startups and crappy Node.js projects that depended on it, and so people were all freaking out. And so now there's all this hubbub about what to do and whether uh, developers should be able to do that and that people shouldn't be depending on all these other projects and such and such. And I guess like yeah. somebody even stepped up and created new node modules to take the place of those ones that this developer pulled. And so people could get like uh, potentially compromising code injected into their application all of a sudden because... Node didn't or NPM didn't reserve the the names of these modules and just all kinds of crap that all of the other non Node.js developers were just kind of pointing at and laughing and being like, "What are you guys smoking? Like, why do you have all these tiny modules for really t like basic functions? Why don't you just put them all into a common library or something like that?" Yeah. So I think on Lobsters now, there's like. Half of the stories on the front page are about all of this crap, which annoys me, but yeah. So um, 
I guess it just comes down to that Node.js and by association JavaScript, they don't really have like a standard library that they can implement all of these basic functions in that Mm -hmm. every other programming language has basically. And so you have to depend on all of these tiny modules to get all this core functionality. Yeah, I don't know that I really adhere to or I subscribe to that particular type of uh, dependency management. As someone who has, you know, built applications like uh, internally to a company that we depend on, um, I can assure you that every single source tree for every library we, library we used was pulled in locally so that we have a local um, mirror or way to access it. It, because I'm telling you, there are things that go offline, the project name changes, it changes ownership, they merge with another project, the goals change, and whatever. And so I don't subscribe to that really anymore. I, I've been bit too many times from it. Um, I have been known to go get things, and um, they live on GitHub and stuff like that. And and after I try them out and I vet out my idea, that um, particular library or whatever comes in locally, and I keep it in my infrastructure so that I can audit it. I can um, uh, have a local copy of it that isn't changing underneath. Uh, you know, like I'm working on a development machine. I pull in the thing from GitHub and it pulls in whatever version they have then. And then the next guy comes in a year later and he goes and gets it and he's got a different one than I have uh, with, you know, backwards incompatibility and all that stuff. So it's just best not to do that. Um, I know that like Ruby Gems and Node Package Manager and GoGet and all those things, they all talk about the same types of problems, but um, it's best not to rely on that type of infrastructure, I think, for those big projects anyway. So the people whose stuff broke, um, I think you're doing it wrong. I think you need to look at a different approach. I think you should be guarding your products a little bit better than that. And if you're you know, relying on some... 10 line diff from some guy in NPM, then, you know, you you don't really care about your products too much at that point. Yeah. I just, I don't really understand this method of, um, I don't know if it's integration testing or like how they do deployments where they're basically fetching everything from scratch and then like switching over to that thing that just built and went through all the testing instead of just like updating whatever is in production. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's like a problem of it not being like an atomic point where you can switch over or if there's some other reason for doing it, but it just seems ridiculous that all these companies and websites have this massive dependency on these um, centralized repositories because they do like multiple deployments per day. And every time they do a commit or something, there's all these automated systems that go out and fetch all this stuff and try and compile it all and make it all run and stuff. Um, just seems very wasteful and very brittle it's a horrible thing to do i mean absolutely just a terrible way to do things and and you know that's why i i don't even think some people understand what's happening when they do that you know they npm install and they're like well where did that come from you know Mm -hmm. um and then so we're we're kind of automating away or masking all these things that are happening underneath and people are like oh look at how simple this is and i'm like wait a second this is not simple. You you are triggering a, like a space shuttle launch underneath here. Yeah. And, you know, it's one command for you, but you have uh, 10 or 100 times the complexity as if you just would have like pulled down this library into your source tree and uh, 
done a little audit of the code and then maintained your own local you know branch of it or whatever and don't and don't misunderstand I'm not saying like copy down web webkit and redistribute webkit with all your stuff um, but there has to be a process to it you know you have to maintain like oh we're gonna track webkit whatever release they're on and then you upgrade webkit every so often and you make sure that the security updates are applied and all these other things um, but yeah it's 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 a crazy nightmare I don't know how people do that too like um, that was that was this we had a contractor in, in a place where I worked and that was his solution for everything and it wound up pulling in like I want to say like 1500 megs worth of JavaScript dependencies I'm not exaggerating. And I was like, this is crazy. You expect me to run this on the build server every time we blow away the source tree and rebuild it from scratch? He's like, yeah, it just goes out and fetches it. It was insane to me. I thought it was stupid. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people are, are realizing now is that when stuff like this breaks, that most of these people that set all this crap up, they have no idea what is going on. They don't understand any of the, um, like you said, they just run a command and it just has worked up until now. So they don't bother to investigate what it's actually doing uh you know where the code is coming from and it's like if you're doing all these, de these deployments and all of your dependencies haven't changed in like months or a year or whatever like why don't you just cache all that stuff locally or put it into your your git tree or something like that um it just seems totally wasteful to be downloading all this crap multiple times per day yeah and who's to say somebody isn't gonna put some rubbish uh, in between you and whatever, you know, mirror and, ah, look, now you've got crap injected into your application or whatever. Right. I don't know, a little too much tinfoil hat, but you get the idea. It could well, be I mean, it, it happened. Somebody published those modules with the same names, um, and everyone that had dependencies on them just trusted them because they had that built into their, their build system. There was nothing that, um, like, validated any of the stuff that it was downloading. Yeah. That's uh, that's a lot different than something like OpenBSD's uh, package uh, deployment or ports tree because the packages that we build are signed. So we know that they're actually built by someone who we were, we're assuming had that key and signed to that particular package. And uh, it works a lot different than, you know, RubyGems and uh, Python eggs and all these other NPM and all this other kind of stuff. So they all work a little bit different. And I... I'm glad to see that um, we're doing signed packages now in OpenBSD. Yeah, so uh, just more JavaScript wackiness. Yeah, I wish we had an alternative. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess on the one hand, like, why don't you just write a simple function yourself to left pad a string or um, whatever these other tiny modules are? But I kind of mm. shudder to think at how many crappy broken implementations would be out there mm -hmm. um people just like copying and pasting them out of, out of stack overflow or something like that something happened to me i think it was a week or two ago oh yeah i was working on a, an authentication framework and i copied something from stack overflow and i was like okay somebody's example right and i was like oh okay i see what they're doing here and i'm just gonna make some changes to this and i I was like going to show the intern and I was going to let him see like, oh, this is how we're doing this. And I was like, wait a second, either I don't understand this or this code is wrong. <laughs> and so um, the moral of the story is don't copy code from Stack Overflow because even the answers that have tons of upvotes are wrong sometimes too. <laughs> yeah, there was a uh, proposal recently to remove mcrypt from PHP because 
Um, basically, the way that you encrypt and decrypt stuff using mcrypt is you have to copy and paste a whole bunch of lines of code um, and tell it to use all these specific algorithms and modes and all this other stuff that most people, um, even me, like don't really understand. And so, like in the proposal, somebody went to like the top Stack Overflow result and copied and pasted it into the proposal, saying like this is what most people are doing. And every <laughs> basically every step of it was wrong and yeah. like outdated. And so they are just going to end up removing mcrypt and I would assume uh, having more uh, basic functions for encrypting and decrypting data. Uh, nice. Internet people of the internet, uh, we need to get the smart people in a room and let them talk about smart things. There's not enough uh, healthy discussion going on and I just see it every day. It's like more rubbish on the internet that people are like, yeah, go you, you're awesome. And I'm like, wait, no, that's wrong. <laughs> like, don't do that. So good. Well, we had some uh, fun this week. We actually were um, were able to talk to Will Backman on uh, his podcast, uh, BSD Talk. Yeah. Um, so Brandon and I were interviewed um, just talking about uh, how we got started in OpenBSD. And uh, Will was basically plugging our podcast for us because we're not very good at it, um, at plugging it. I mean, at, not at making a podcast, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So if you have not, uh, if you're not listening to BSD talk, um, that's a shame, but it's a, uh, BSD podcast that's been around for over 10 years. And, uh, Will has some really great interviews with a lot of, uh, important people talking about projects and stuff like that. So, um, you can, if you aren't subscribed to it, go listen to a whole bunch of things at uh, bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And yeah. uh, thanks to Will for uh, having us on. Yeah, it was a fun interview. I, I enjoyed it. It's um, short and sweet and to the point, and uh, you know, um, I think you guys will enjoy it. It's a it's a quick listen. Yeah, not all the uh, negativity of our podcast. Yeah, we didn't eat. Well, I had one slam on Google in there, but other than that, it was for, for the most part pretty positive. So good. That that's uh, a lot of stuff happening this week. A lot of fun stuff, exciting stuff. Uh, did you want to talk about your APU two? Yeah, APU two. Uh, a little bit of a interesting thing. I I don't remember. Um, I mentioned the go build time seemed pretty slow on it, and I was like, huh, I wonder if something's messed up in the firmware. Well, then, as soon as I um, you know, went to look, there was a new firmware available, and it says, aha, unleash the performance or something like that. You know, they fixed some performance issues uh, that they had in, the, in Coreboot. So uh flashed the newest version of Coreboot on my APU2, and I think the build went down like a minute or something like that for my um, Go toolchain. And I was rather impressed with that, and uh, I'm look. I'm hoping there's more. Actually, I'm hoping they find a, a bit more stuff. I know that ECC still isn't turned on, and uh, there's some other things in there that I, I'm thinking, you know, will still shake out to get a little bit better performance on it. But yeah, I like that I can flash the firmware on that, and um, like within OpenBSD. Um, oh, I shouldn't advertise that because I actually grabbed some um, some ports that were done off of the mailing list. Uh, somebody sent in a diff for um, um, Flash ROM, and he's like, "Hey, I want this to work in OpenBSD." And then, so Flash ROM, you have to build another library with a particular um, patch applied, and then you have to reboot the machine into uh, secure level like minus one. 
so that you can access things that you don't want to access normally. But then you can just flash it using the internal flasher on the APU2. You get a new um, core boot, and then you reboot it with secure level one or whatever you want to use, and uh, you're on your merry way. So I, I like that. I, I'm still impressed with the board. I like it. Cool. So I um, I saw something on Twitter this week, um, and it was Miode, and he said uh, he's having a moment seeing uh, a neighboring BSD project struggling with an ASLR virtual machine problem that OpenBSD fixed years ago. And um, Virtual memory. You know, I, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. VM. All these old school machines. VM, yeah. Yeah, old school VM. Virtual <laughs> memory, yes. Um, but anyway, uh, there was a reply to that tweet from uh, Michael Dexter, and he said um, he has the same feeling with Beehive in FreeBSD and OpenBSD in VM, and... Um, he said it would be funny if we all collaborated more. And I think he's talking about the BSD projects in general, collaborating more a bit. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about it. All right. Um, because I, I see, again, this is completely my, my idea here, but, um, you guys can, can write in and complain if you see things differently. But, um, I was looking at a write up that, um, TJ did, and he was kind of like pointing out some deficiencies in FreeBSD. And it wound up on lobsters, and somebody made a comment about uh, something. And, you know, I was discussing that with TJ, and he said, no, the guy's wrong. Um, he just has it wrong. And I looked, and sure enough, uh, the OpenBSD project has, um, on numerous occasions, offered to make the um, ARC4 random uh, implementation in FreeBSD as good as the one in OpenBSD. And they've sent diffs. And the diffs are just like dry rotting or left on the floor. Or I don't know what's happening. And so um, that's just kind of like one example. But I, I see that um, more than I see FreeBSD sending us diffs that were like, nope, not going to touch that. And in fact, um, generally what happens um, is there'll be a, a, an important diff that gets emailed um, either to the mailing list or, you know, to some other person. And they'll say, hey... I don't have time to deal with this now. I don't have time to take care of this. You guys take care of this. This is important. Make sure, blah, 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 blah. And then we, we pull those changes in. But I very seldom see um, them go the other way. And so I feel like um, when we talk about collaborating between the BSDs, that there is a lot of um, effort put forth from the OpenBSD project to other projects um, that is just ignored. Um, whether it be LibreSSL or, you know, kernel changes or random number generators or all those things, this is what I see on a regular basis. Um, and I see very little coming back the other way. And um, the OpenBSD project um, financially, I think, is moderately backed. I think we have a decent budget. Um, and so we really have to be, you know, resourceful with those funds and we have to make them work. And some other projects, you know, namely FreeBSD, they have a lot of money um, and they have a lot of manpower. And so I, I find it a little bit strange sometimes when we talk about collaboration, when we're sending them work that we've already done, that they don't have enough manpower to apply a diff or, you know, commit this particular change. So that's what I see. Um, and generally when I talk to FreeBSD folks in, in real life or when we chat online, 
I think we get along great. But there feels like there's some sort of untalked about barrier between the projects that keeps us for, from collaborating on what I consider are very important things. Mm -hmm. While you were explaining it, I was thinking like, well, how does Linux do it? There's so many different people involved in Linux, but they have one kernel. And how right. are they able to all collaborate on that kernel? And I thought, well, that's not really the same thing because the kernel is just like a whole bunch of hardware drivers. No one's really um, making different implementations of a of a hardware driver and like arguing about whose is better, right? Mm -hmm. Someone writes a driver and it works and everyone moves on. But in the user land, you have 9 million Linux distributions because every one of them wants to do something different. Mm -hmm. So there isn't any real collaboration there. And then you just have like these core projects like um, Red Hat and uh, Debian that um, like all these other projects kind of fork off of so that Red Hat and um, and Debian like do a lot of the maybe heavy lifting of all of the infrastructure and stuff. And then the, the other projects that want to like splinter off and change a few things um, can kind of get by without doing a lot of that heavy lifting and then call mm -hmm. themselves a new Linux distribution. Right. But I think with the BSDs, because everything is integrated, you can't have like that one shared um, kernel or user land. So there's always going to be differences in opinions. And I guess that's just kind of how developers align. So it's, you know, if you look at each project independently and you say which one fits my method of development or release schedule or approach on security or whatever, um, and then you gravitate towards that project. And I think, I don't know, I guess if you like choose one project, you that kind of gives you feelings about not choosing the other projects. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of where that animosity comes from and um, not wanting to share with them because you aren't associated with them and you want everyone to come to your project. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, talking about Linux, um, I'm almost certain that the um, some of the random number generator work that uh, was done in OpenBSD got adopted into Linux. Um, and in fact, I'm almost certain it was. And, you know, so you see it going back into something like Linux where, uh, you know, Linus is like, hey, we need to make this change. Yeah, 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 this is the right thing to do, where it didn't go into a BSD-related project. It, the irony there strikes me. <laughs> So yeah, those are the animosities between the, the projects. And I, and I don't know that it's necessarily, like, I, I don't really know where it comes from because, I mean, these folks, all smart people, you know, and we get along fine, but there's something about uh, certain things that maybe the timing's wrong or whatever, but after you've sent in a diff three or four or five times across the span of a few years, it just, you, that can't be the excuse anymore. So I'm not sure what it is. Um, uh, to, to Michael Dexter's point about, you know, Beehive and VMM, it was not a case of ego or not invented here or anything like that. It was, um, you know, we had a very specific goal, um, with the virtualization layer. And I, I know it's been talked about to death, so I won't really get into it, but, um, Beehive just wasn't hitting the marks, um, as far as what we wanted to have for virtualization. There were a number of things that would have taken a, just an insurmountable amount of work um, to, to change to make work in OpenBSD. As it is, VMM and the tools to control it right now are, 
I would say around a thousand lines worth of diff, maybe a little bit more. I mean, that's that's not a lot of stuff. Whereas Beehive is a very, you know, massive set of tools and changes and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, obviously it does a bit more, but um, you know, the goals were just different. It was it was not an issue of that. And and actually, every single time I'm calling you guys out on this. Every single time I talk to FreeBSD folks about Beehive uh, coming to OpenBSD, they laughed. And they're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's been talked about before. And I'm like, well, why doesn't it happen? And they scoffed and they whatever. And I thought, well, if this is your attitude, you know, that's not a very good way to try and get, um, you know, this particular piece of software in another project. That's not just not how things work. So there's conflicting messages between that and what Michael Dexter's saying, like, why can't we get collaboration? And um, and I think the technical reasons, too, are also another conflict of um, uh, there maybe they're just. What, what am I trying to say there? Um, conflicting information or conflicting um, patterns. Yeah, I think uh, at least with the difference between like OpenBSD and FreeBSD, the kernels have diverged enough that uh, it's not very straightforward sometimes to integrate a diff from FreeBSD or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like if a new hardware driver gets added to NetBSD, it's pretty trivial to make it run on or to integrate it into OpenBSD. Um, and then you have with FreeBSD, you have their, um, in my opinion, weird, uh, release schedule where they have this branch that lives on for years. So, I mean, from an outsider, I don't don't really know the details of it, but it's like, so what goes into which branch? And then like, does all my work go into current that no one is running because Mm -hmm. it like doesn't build most of the time? Um, or it's like, like how long will it take to get this running? on most people's machines. Yeah, and contrary to that, OpenBSD's release cycle is every six months, and we maintain um, updates, security, and other critical updates to two releases. So that's that's how we do things. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily even just a manpower decision, as much as it is, like, you need to stop running old code um, if you can. And that's my take on it. And I don't know, other people have their ideas. I know that long-term support for Linux and you buy this long-term support for corporations and it's like, oh, 10 years in this and 15 years in that. And it, I, I don't know. I'm not a guy who subscribes to that. I just don't think that's the, the way to do things. Yeah. I mean, for some things, maybe you want your old hardware supported for a while, but if you have something connected to the internet for security and stuff like that, you certainly don't want to to be running old stuff. I mean, just like what you were talking before about um, SHA-1 being deprecated. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you got to change stuff and rotate some certificates and all that kind of stuff, but, like, you can't ignore that stuff just because you don't want to change anything. I mean, if we all had that attitude, we'd all be running Telnet still. Yep. And uh, although we did have some collateral damage, though... (laughs) Um, lights out management on uh, some Spark 64 machines. You can't SSH to it anymore. <laughs> Which I mean, that's that's one of those things. It's one thing to be deprecated, and it's another thing to be like turned off and all that other kind of stuff because it's not useful, or we know that it's broken, or we need to start encouraging people to do the right thing and move on to the right thing. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how hard is it to compile an old version of SSH to. Uh log into that one thing. I mean, to access yep. the um, the equivalent of the lights out on my colo servers, I have to uh, 
run a browser with the Java plugin enabled and bypass all these terrible warnings and all this other bull****. Yep. Well, good rant. I like that. Yeah. Good discussion. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that because, uh, of course, this this is just our opinions on this particular thing. So if you guys have uh, an idea on that or want to refute us or encourage us or any have any ideas on that, I'd like to hear it because I think there's more than w- what meets the eye when it comes to the project collaboration thing. Yeah. Oh, you know how they say, like, um, in other countries that a lot of the people, they don't hate Americans, they hate America. Like, they mm-hmm. hate the government of our country. They don't hate the people from our country. And maybe that's like the same thing in these projects. Like, um, if people from OpenBSD don't like, uh, or like, you know, OpenBSD users don't like FreeBSD as a project, but like you were saying, if you go to a conference and you start talking to all the FreeBSD developers, they're all good people and you can all, you know, have a conversation and talk about stuff and disagree and, and all this other stuff. Um, but maybe there's just more of a, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but it's just like you're you're disagreeing as on a project level and not really at a, on a developer level. Yeah, they very well could be. But anywho, all right. Well, I guess that's all we have for this episode. And if there's anything else you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at garbage.fm. Subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Brandon, where can people find you? Yep, I'm going to be on Twitter. I'm at no mercy mod with a K N O W, and I'm also on Google Plus. And I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. My cat is locked in the basement. Either that or it's my chair. Hold on one second. The five foot assassin with the roughneck business. I float like gravity, never had a cavity. Got more rhymes than the one that's got family. No need to sweat our seniors to gain some type of fame. No shame in my game, cause I always be the same. Styles upon styles upon styles is what I have. You wanna just fight for, but you still don't know the half. I sport new balance sneakers to avoid an arrow path. Messing right with this against the size of the. I never have stuff, cause I'm not a half stuffer. Drink a lot of soda, so they call me Dr. Pepper. Refuse to compete with BS competition. Your name is Specialist, so won't you suckle with the mission? I never walk the street, think it's all about me. Even though deep in my heart,